We all like to think we live in an inclusive world, that our sex and gender preferences are accepted. But despite diversity and inclusion initiatives, the LGBTQ plus community is still suffering stigma and discrimination, leading to serious mental health issues. Welcome to With Not For, a podcast from the Centre for Inclusive Design. My name is Manisha Amin, speaking to you from the lands of the Camaragal people here in North Sydney, Australia. My guest today is Lara Hustleby, whose career includes working for various institutions as a facilitator and an experienced designer, or as Lara describes herself, an experienced designer with a heart to make big changes. One of the areas Lara is making big changes in is as an advocate for rainbow youth. She's a president of Wear It Purple, a volunteer organisation that strives to foster supportive, safe, empowering and inclusive environments for rainbow youth. In short, Wear It Purple believes everybody has the right to be proud of who they are. Lara, welcome to With Not For. Thanks, Manisha. I'm super excited to be here. It's um, been quick planning, but a long time in relationship. Absolutely. And I've really loved watching and talking to you as you've moved from different roles and different work in the last five or six years. And all of that work has really had at the core of it this notion of experience design. So can you tell us a little bit about what an experienced designer does and how you found yourself in this role and particularly in this role in relationship to LGBTQ plus communities? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I guess what I'll kind of frame as every experienced designer loves to do, frame my statements today is obviously this is my experience and my views of what experienced design is, but it's certainly not everything. And I'm sure that there's many people out there who would like to add many more sentences to what I kind of am about to say. But for me, experienced design is orchestrating that brand commitment, be it to an employee or a customer throughout every entity or area of your, um, your business. So for example, um, you know, for a new starter starting at a, uh, at an organisation, it's really working out what's the experience that they get right from the start right through to the end of their um, time with your organisation. Or from a customer's perspective, obviously we have um, lovely teams like marketing who look at the sales and the pitch to get customers through the door, but how do we keep that brand commitment all the way through from complaints handling to documentation? So my role is to be the orchestra, um, to orchestrate and to, I guess, design what those experiences are like for customers. Often when we think about brands, you know, the concept is really lofty and warm and welcoming, but the experiences that people sometimes have in those organisations is significantly different to that. And when we think about LGBTQ plus communities, I was really shocked, actually, when I saw the statistics around, for instance, suicide Mm. and the difference um, that some of these communities and people are having um, when we think about those brand experiences and how does that relate to what you do every day? Yeah, it's a great question. And and look, I think this is where my two worlds or three worlds maybe, so my personal life, I identify as a lesbian woman and, um, I, you know, I've worked as an experienced designer for a long time and I, I now also head up um, Wear It Purple, which is a charity organisation. And um, I think, you know, brands promising of, 
uh, whatever it is or, or, you know, product promise, all of those things, it becomes really interesting when you like lift the hood and see how that's delivered or the metrics that are behind it. There was an amazing piece that was released and I wish I had the information in front of me, but it was from um, a Melbourne study that looked into insurance and LGBTQ people's kind of um, risk factors and ratings behind some of our basic products. So home, car, um, contents insurance. And actually it, the the rating factors are pretty significant and have some huge impacts on LGBTQ plus people. Can you give us an example of one of those um, factors and how they kind of play out for community? Yeah, look, so um, I think brands are doing a much better job. Um, and I, I guess before we kind of continue down this path, one thing I don't want to say is that like experience design isn't just about brand proposition, right? It, there's right. so much more um, beyond that. In fact, I would say that there's a lot of teams that are really about the brand proposition and ours is about following through with that commitment but making sure the experience is what customers need at every point, which is based upon um, research and I guess balancing that desirability with what's viable for the business and we all know this little Venn diagram, what's feasible also for uh, technology stacks that we have. But I think... Um, if I think about that brand promise again, so, you know, we really need to be careful about what we present as organisations and branding, particularly for minority groups or those who are um, disadvantaged. I've sat in many a bank and I've sat in many a discussion around um, visuals of who should be presented. And often we're seeing very white, um, very Caucasian, very um, heteronormative presenting um, stock images, which, again, fine. However, I encourage brands to push well beyond that because it actually doesn't project um, visibility of these role model, uh, sorry, of these um, minority groups for people to role model themselves off. Um, imagine what it's like growing up now in Australia if you're only seeing brands project and, and top tier brands, right, projecting a certain look and feel, you wouldn't feel like you have a place. Pair that with the rhetoric of what our politicians um, have recently discussed in our um, in the recent political debates for who was going to lead our country and how quick it was to pick up trans and gender diverse youth and drag them over hot coals saying that they didn't have a, um, a right to be here or a right to express um, or explore what their gender is or their sexual sexual orientation. It'd be a really horrible place to be if you're, you know, from that minority group and not seeing any visuals that support who you are and also hearing this rhetoric from the top tier. That's really interesting, Lara, because that discrimination that you're talking about isn't really explicit and overt. However, I think that when we lift the hood on an organisation and think about how we're creating experiences and how we're creating products, these things become increasingly important. What are some of the things that we can do within organisations to make sure that we're making conscious decisions that don't bias our products um, for one community or another? Yeah, it's a really great, great question. And I'm sure there's a myriad of answers for this. I guess for me, some of the things that I would think about is what is the diversity makeup of your own organizations? And then how does that diversity roll out into the teams that are working on these products, these experiences, these marketing campaigns, et cetera, so that they are more robust and accounting for the amazing differences that Australia is made up of? It can be age, it could be ethnicity, gender, sexual orientation. All of these things are really important in terms 
terms of how we design products for people and with people. Um, I think other things is actually having almost a matrix to quality check. And, and, you know, I'm sure there's a lot of people who shudder at that um, out there, but I really do think that that's important to make sure that your brand lives up to its values and promises in terms of its diversity inclusion. So that makeup um, could be uh, sorry, that matrix could be, um, you know, checking that you are actually being diverse in the images that are going out, that you are accounting for um, in your call centres that gender is being removed from your conversations, those sort of things. Um, and then making sure that you're employing people who live up to those values as well. And when we think about visible and invisible um, disability, looking at the social model of disability rather than the physical model of disability or even difference. Mm. What are some of the things we can do? You know, sometimes people will say, well, it's all well and good to say our photo needs to reflect diversity, but how do I reflect different genders or things that might not be as explicit? Mm. Um, Great question. So, look, I'll take it back to my role. Mm -hmm. um, so I often have to create a ton of journey maps for companies. Someone who's experienced design, they think one of the only outputs that we can do is journey mapping, and so that's, that's something that I'm often doing. And I think then, again, it's exploring the way that you're talking about the people throughout the journey. Do they need to be gendered? Who has the position of power in some of the narrative that you're providing? I recently rolled off a project for the Department of Health um, in Victoria, which was all around – uh, the Royal Commission into Mental Health. And it was a really amazing project, a really incredible team. Um, and myself, the agency that I was working for at the time, and, and also the department were really across making sure that our um, products were as diverse as possible, but also making sure that what we were getting in terms of information was diverse as possible. But even at the end, when we're producing these journey maps, we're seeing, um, you know, I managed to spot I don't know, three different positions of power where there was a white man who was the doctor, there was the white man who was um, providing like uh, up teaching in the narrative, all of this sort of stuff. And even with, um, you know, as much rigour as you possibly can, you can get to that final point and then realise, well, actually, this map is... Um, not as diverse as I would like or not representing things or has injected too much power imbalance or gender um, without it needing to be there. And so, you know, it was an opportunity for us at the end to like review it, reshake it up, change the narrative or change the um, images and then have a discussion around how that happened as well. Um, and it's just internal bias. So doing all of those um courses that you can do around checking your own internal bias should be, I think, mandatory for a lot of companies, particularly if they're doing anything with AI or building these products, as you say, with risk factors that are involved or other algorithms. What have you found the most challenging in that area? I think the continual conversation with some people is really hard. Um, you know, again, this is where my three worlds combine, right? I am a female cisgendered lesbian who um, works in experience design and champions LGBTQ youth issues. I can't tell you the amount of times that I've had to sit down with certain people and talk about some of the issues that their females are experiencing in the workplace that they've come to me and shared or what it's like to be LGBTQ. And it's really seen as an affront to that either individual or business. So I do find those conversations continually hard. Um, and, you know, I'm working on ways that I can deliver that better so that the message comes across with what it's meant to be rather than um, 
I guess, with shock or anger, but I can only control the way I deliver that message, not the response. And I think that's really powerful, what you're talking about. Um, in the world today, the word allyship and ally mm. has become, you know, such a catchphrase in some ways. And, and a lot of people are keen to support, um, other people, but there is a cost to that that I think you're alluding to here as well. Yeah, completely. How do you, and I think it's also interesting and very generous that you talk about how the message is heard, not the cost to you mm. of how the message is delivered. And, I'm really interested in seeing or understanding how you balance those things out and how might people actually who choose to be allies actually support themselves because the burnout rate is high. Yeah, it's a really, really topical point and also topical for me personally as well. Um, you know, this time of year, I'm back to back in speaking events for where at Purple Day, um, be it schools or organizations talking about these issues. Um, but naturally, you know, there's an expectation to share your story. And sometimes I choose to lean into that, sometimes not. Um, then also, you know, I'm, I've, I'm a certain point in my career where I have a certain amount of leverage that I can stand up and champion rights. And, you know, I wish I was that strong when I was a junior. I can't say I was in the most amazing places to do that. Um, but I find myself at a point where I'm often standing up for people or, um, on behalf of people once they've asked me to. And so, you know, it is really tiring and it does absolutely take a toll. And I think as experienced designers, there's a broader chat around we how we have to protect ourselves when we are leaning into spaces where we're learning a lot that can actually be quite traumatic for us as well. Um, and that's something that has, you know, particularly come up for me recently with, again, um, this mental health project because it really was um, a huge challenge on my own mental health, um, not from the client, they were amazing, but more just from the topics and stories we had to hear to do the research. So, um, yeah, I, I think, as you say, it's <clears throat> very topical at the moment for me personally and then also professionally, I think, or globally what people are experiencing um, when it comes to kind of that allyship discussion. So I think what you'll hear people starting to say is active ally now um, because, you know, throughout the plebiscite and marriage equality, there was a lot of people who were saying I'm an ally, which is fantastic, and there certainly was. And the, thankfully a lot of people stood up and very publicly said yes, um, which still baffles me that our nation had to come to that point to to decide that people who love each other could get married. Um, but what I think active allyship actually means is beyond those moments. Um, it's how do you continue to learn? How do you continue to step into spaces that may not seem super comfortable for you, but it's an opportunity to listen? How do you seek out the myriad of resources? And how do you champion those braver conversations or those courageous conversations with your kids, with your parents, with those around the table when maybe they're saying something that doesn't align with what you've learnt or what your values are. I can think of a few conversations where I've been personally challenged, even though, you know, you could say that um, the work that I do should have helped and championed me, where I've got some amazing family friends that I've grown up with who are my parents' friends who've said some stuff and I'm really in the moment trying to figure out how I can remove the emotion and... Um, speak freely whilst helping them kind of understand. And that stuff shouldn't always be on the minority group's shoulders. It should be on everyone's shoulders. Right. But I don't think leaning into your queer friend and asking them 
to educate you is your only answer. Some people can, and it's something that I, it's a hat that I'm wearing at the moment, but it certainly shouldn't be expected. Now, and that brings me to wear it purple. Because even though the LGBTQ plus community is represented in popular culture now, in movies and shows and books, and the media reports on LGBTQ plus issues a lot more than, say, they did in the 1980s or even in 1978 when the first Sydney gay and lesbian Mardi Gras started. Um, when we look at the time that's passed, it seems like we've come a long way, you know, marriage equality, all these things that we've spoken about. However, there's still so much more to be done. And I'm really interested in why you chose to be involved in Wear It Purple Day and what some of the things you are seeing are in terms of mental health in young people. Mm. So I think what I heard there is like one, really, what is the kind of state of play? Two, how did I get involved? And then three, what is it like for LGBTQ youth? I guess we could bring it back to thinking about has it really changed for LGBTQ people in Australia? And my answer is probably yes and no. So yes, it has changed in terms of different mechanisms of violence, but no, the violence hasn't stopped. So for example, you know, on Oxford Street a fortnight ago, a man was bashed by five people. This is meant to be one of the most safest streets for queer people in the world almost. We're, you know, celebrated as a country that is inclusive of LGBTQ people and that is the street that is known for it. And that happened uh, under a fortnight ago. And then I think about those statistics that you mentioned around mental health and LGBTQ youth. So I think nowadays I, I couldn't imagine what it's like to go through school with social media the way that it is. I got a tiny taste in the final year. I'm, I'm that old where it was just at the pit at the end. Um, but I couldn't imagine if that's your main message or, or um it's your main way of communicating and then that's actually turned into quite a violent or um, or lack of inclusive um, space for you and that's what you're used to in terms of how you connect to friends. Um, so I'm going to just talk about some statistics right now from an amazing report that was done by Latrobe called Writing Themselves in Four. Um, now, Take these statistics with the knowledge that this all um, was gathered and presented pre-COVID so you can imagine how dire they are post-COVID given what we've all gone through. So 75% of LGBTQ youth are likely to have been bullied for their gender identity, expression or sexual orientation or altogether and 80% of that is likely to happen in schools safe assumption in the fact that they spend most of their time there. How that manifests, though, if we look at the 16 to 17-year-old bracket, so not long at all, Twelve um, LGBTQ youth are 12 times more likely to experience depression and five times more likely to experience anxiety. Um, so how this plays out, 59.1% of LGBTQ youth people within that bracket of 16 to 17 have reported experiencing suicidal ideation as an option to handling this bullying. Hang on, 59.1%. This is contrary to 11.2% of the population from that same age bracket. Now, this was pre-COVID, so you can imagine how both numbers have spiked up. 
But let me tell you, I'm sure everyone here listening to this podcast believes no kid, no matter the age, no matter the gender, no matter the background or social orientation, uh, sexual orientation, should think that death is the only option for them. It's not fair, and it, it makes my it makes my eyes swell up. But you can only imagine the amount of pain that that kid is going through. Absolutely, those numbers are shocking. Yeah, and Manisha, unfortunately, they get worse when you start to break down each of our letters, right? So for our trans um, and gender diverse people, and as I said earlier on, this just continues to get worse and worse and worse. So um, so like, again, remembering that these statistics are pre-COVID, but 41% of transgender people and non-binary people reported having self-harmed in the last two weeks. Those numbers are really shocking, you know, and when we think about what you just said about suicide, self-harm, I think comes into that same same sort of bucket, right, in terms of when our emotions are so strong that we can't see any other way out. And and to be honest, you know, we all know what it's like to be a teenager where you're challenging everything, you're questioning everything, you're trying to work on the fringe to work out your personality, let alone gender and sexual orientation on top. It's hard. But imagine when you can't see through that fog of emotions, being a teenager, being bullied, trying to figure out who you are, and then you're actually hearing rhetoric from our top-tier politicians who are fighting for a place to lead this country, absolutely dragging people who are gender diverse, who are trans. In fact, in this recent um, political, I don't even know, it's certainly not leadership, whatever you want to call it, um, you know, where at Purple was mentioned as groomers of people in schools when really our task is to help create safer spaces for schools because, as I called out, 80% of this is bullying is likely to happen in schools. What comes up for me is that when we look at these statistics, which are incredibly high, when we think about the communities we're talking about, we're not talking about a lot of people, you know, and when we think about the media, it almost feels like there's this epidemic of um, people z- that are trans. Mm. And yet it's a very small group of people that are really being heard in a way that's not okay. Yeah, and I think regardless of population size because – like, let me tell you, it is increasing. The more, you know, these safer spaces do bubble up or mm-hmm. the more we see in the media, it is absolutely increasing, but it's only increasing because it is allowing people the space for them to be them versus the bottling it down where it does result in suicide because that's the only outcome where people right. can't be them, right? So whilst statistically on pop- population size it may be small, that number's increasing and, you know, we often talk about how important it is to design for minority first, for the masses. It's actually amazing for insights. You know, um, one of the first presentations that I ever saw you do was at Macquarie Bank and you talked about the bridge and the role that the bridge has and how that – or the ramp and how that was designed for people um, – a minority group, so people who had various um, accessibility issues. But actually that opens up to a whole lot of people in the masses, which is, you know, people running to the airport with their bags, people on bikes, people pushing um, uh, prams, and none of that is gendered. That is just designing for one group, a minority group that's opened up for the masses, and that's what we need to do here. And I think there's something really strong in, in what you're saying there as well. When I think about, say, trans communities and um, 
you know, designing for people, but also learning from the strengths and the insights that different groups have. And I think one of the things that trans communities can do is really spotlight gender for us. So, for instance, there's been some work done, I believe, around trans women and their experience of gender as both Mm. men and women Mm. and their experiences in the workplace and the bias that they faced. And it's really powerful because the person hasn't changed, their competencies haven't changed, their merit hasn't changed. The only thing that's changed is their gender. Yeah, completely. And look, for anyone listening to this podcast, I really do have to say um, the trans experience isn't my experience. No, that's and, right. and I only know what is shared to me either statistically or by the people around me. And again, being an active ally, I've learnt and lent into to more um, resources so that I can learn. And I really encourage people to lean into Trans Hub, which has been released by ACON, championed by the most amazing person, Teddy Cook. Um, and he, he's, with a, long, a lot of other trans people and uh, allies, put together an amazing suite of resources for trans people and for allies of trans people. So, again, if you want to learn more about that experience, really lean into resources like that. Absolutely. And I'm really interested in this space and the strengths-based space around this. You know, we've talked about some of the problems, we've talked about some of the challenges, but I believe that the LGBTQ plus communities are also strong, resilient communities um, that support each other. Yeah, yeah, it's amazing. I mean, look, within my community, and again, putting my personal hat on, we very much talk about chosen family and because often people have had to you know, they've been rejected by their own and their friends turn into their family. Um, and these people will drop anything for you because you have gone through similar things together. You know what it's like to be ostracised by people. You know what it's like to be judged just by the way that you look or the way you choose to express yourself. You know, I've got to say it's pretty funny for me walking through the streets of Crow's Nest. I used to be here as a schoolgirl in a very different attire where I had a Panama hat on and my very private school looking um, outfit and now I'm wearing big Doc Martens and <laughs> short blonde hair and definitely experiencing different looks without, uh, throughout Crow's Nest. So I do think that, like, you know, you lean towards your community because you feel accepted and you feel supported and you don't feel those um, eyes worrying if they're judging you. And obviously sometimes there's an assumption there. Um, but, yeah, it is a, I mean, it is an incredibly supportive community. It's one of the reasons why I'm on Wear It Purple. In your question, you also asked about how I got into Wear It Purple and actually it was my experience design and love of human-centred design that led me there. So at the time I was working at Macquarie Bank and really leaning into um, – I guess, their pride network and how I could use human-centred design to help uplift the experience for LGBTQ people in the bank, talking about policies, talking about events um, and how they were outwardly showing that support through things like the marriage equality. And um, thanks to that, an old Macquarie worker, so Ro- uh, Ross Weatherby, who's the outgoing president, saw the, the work that I was doing and how I was using human-centred design to help and said, we're an organisation that's sprung from the ground of two kids saying that this isn't good enough and we're now at a stage at the time it was about nine years of growth. We need to look at our internal infrastructure and, and do it well that still lives true to our ethos. The only way is human-centred design. So thanks to Ross and that community support, I was able to step onto the board and, yeah, I've been there now. I guess it's coming up to three and a half years. 
What I love about that is often we say, and when we think about young people, we'll say, you know, we need young people to design the new world and we need young people to show us the way. What I like about Wear It Purple is it sounds like it's intergenerational. So it's not just about young people supporting young people and the rest of us cheering young people on, but it's actually different people helping young people, but also changing systems. And you've spoken about systems a lot in, in this podcast as well. Yeah, completely. And look, that's, it's a great example. And I've actually not thought of wear it purple like that because often I'm the one championing. It's youth led issues that we're bringing awareness to. And we have an amazing youth action council that's like consistent of these kids who are like, this is the stuff that's important to us. Champion it for us. But it is, you're right. It's intergenerational. And what are some of the issues that these um, young people are talking about at the moment? Well, yeah, so some of them, um, you know, me- mental health statistics, visibility in the media, um, you know, obviously what it was like experiencing COVID. Many were in homes that they didn't feel safe within um, or they didn't feel safe enough to express the kind of changes or um, explorations that they were uncovering to gender, sexuality. There's people pretty fed up in terms of departments and education around, you know, the lack of um, support in schools uh, as well. But obviously and hopefully things like Wear It Purple and other amazing charities are going to change that. And if I want to be an active ally. Yes. And if the organisations or people listening to this podcast would like to be active allies. Um, so they've done some reading mm-hmm. and... They're wearing the wear it purple t-shirt. That's they've bought the merch. Be my first answer. <laughs> Absolutely. So they've done, they've done those things that I, I guess are one step rem- removed. Yeah. How do we as managers, as colleagues, as peers, and as parents or people in the community actually ensure that people aren't just welcome, but they're heard? Yeah, that's a really great question. And again, I think there's a myriad of answers. I can certainly, um, give a few though. So I think as managers or at, as managers who want to be leaders, let's put it that way, I think there's a role of listening uh, and there's a role of vulnerability. Gone with the days of being the really hard statue at the front that can handle any storm, that's not leadership anymore. Leadership is being vulnerable with your people, actively listening and helping the whole ship um, turn in the right direction given the change that we're in, right, um, that we're constantly facing. And so I think as leaders it is being vulnerable and honest when you're new to a new conversation but how important it is for you to have them. Um, I recently heard a story around someone who was in their business um, and someone came up to them and said, I don't want to use pronouns because it assumes that I'm gay. And the role that this person then had to have as a conversation with that person, doesn't matter the performance levels of this individual, obviously that language isn't acceptable. The way of thinking, I would also say, is not acceptable. Um, It suggests, to be honest, it suggests that gay people are less and that this person wouldn't want to be part of that. And, you know, that's obviously not language that anyone should be using or believing. Um, and so, you know, the role of that particular leader in that moment was to have a challenging conversation, but really stick to the values, um, that they have and the organization has as well. So I think it is, it's those challenging, courageous conversations. It's having enough knowledge where you can step into it confidently, but also being really vulnerable and honest and asking, look, I'm not really sure about this. Let's get people in. Let's have these conversations, but 
by gosh, let me tell you that this is absolutely an important conversation for our organisation. And I think we're going to get it wrong, right? Oh, absolutely. I mean, look, again, we we talked about experience design at the start of this podcast and the beauty of experience design, it's built on practices like human-centred design, it's um, design thinking, hell, why not chuck in some agile in there? And and this, all of these things, it talks about failing fast, but it talks about failing with grace, right? So you, you fail fast to learn and you build up from there and you improve. And so, you know, the amount of times me as a lesbian woman have tripped over LGBTQ plus um, as an acronym is a huge amount, but that's okay. It, it doesn't matter. It's about stepping back up, getting it right. I didn't even start off this podcast by using my pronouns, which are she and her, by the way. And that, you know, that's important for me to do as a leader in the queer community to show people that actually it's really easy to do use your pronouns and that anyone can use them, no matter your sexual orientation or gender. It's interesting. I hadn't actually considered that people might consider the use of pronouns as a way of identifying their sexuality. Uh, it's more gender. Sorry. But, but yes, but this, but no, it's no, it's no sorry. It's exactly where that person took it to be a slag on their sexual orientation. And I would probably stretch to that individual probably doesn't know the difference between gender and sexual orientation in yeah. terms of the way that we're talking about it. And hopefully over time, they educate themselves and have challenged their own views. Um, but yeah, look, pronouns are a really important one. Um, and again, pronouns are about creating safe spaces. So for people listening, I've kind of got a bit of a challenge for them. I, I would ask yourselves, have you ever been asked when you step in a room to identify yourself as your sexual, by your sexual orientation? Um, I recently, well, actually it was kind of forgetting the COVID years. It was a few years ago now. So I worked on a project for um, a country, South Australia, and all of the connected um, health networks down there. And the intent of the project was to work with um, the client was Country SAPHN, and it was to work with them uplifting their inclusive practices across all of the various GPs that exist in their network and how they could make sure that they were, be it, LGBTQ, gender, et cetera, be more inclusive in the language that they were using. And so the session started out. I was like, hi, my name's Lara. My pronouns are she and her. I identify as a lesbian woman. And then uh, uh, the leader next to me went, oh, hi, I'm blah. My pronouns are blah. And I'm a straight woman. And like, it was an amazing experience. We talked afterwards about it. She was like, you know, I've never had to do that yet. You have to do that every time you walk into a room. And obviously you make a choice as why you're doing it. But, you know, I'm a leader within the LGBTQ community in terms of I lead where at purple. It is my responsibility, I believe, to step up and show that I am happy and confident as a lesbian woman so that young kids who you know, coming up the rank, be it in Wear It Purple or listening to any of these things, know that, hey, it's actually okay to be queer and it's great being a lesbian and this is how I've, like, projected my life in my career and and all of that. But, yeah, for this one woman, she's like, oh, my God, I've never had to do that and that was so confronting and I didn't know if I should do it and I didn't know if it was inappropriate. And, And so, you know, it's a really interesting challenge to go, like, 
that's all the pronouns is as well, right? It's you creating an inclusive space, using language to create an inclusive space for those who are around you by identifying the way that you want to be referred to. She, her, him, his, they, them, there's a list. And what I really love about that is this idea that it's not just about the edge doing the identification, it's not just about the edge, that we're actually looking at making sure that the things that we take for granted are made explicit. Yeah, absolutely. And and it is a privilege to navigate this world looking the gender that you are and feel and being in that body. It is a privilege. Could you imagine, this was part of that project, what it's like being continued to be misgendered when you're going to someone who's meant to be in in a country town the like cornerstone of safety your gp even though you've expressed your pronouns to them or you've expressed your journey exploring gender diverse trans and and again that's not my experience but the statistics are very high and it it stops people from going to see these people which has huge like issues in terms of their health, which then has huge issues on our social like structure as well. You know, it's it's so interesting. There's so much to be done. There's so much that has been done. So I have one last question for you, and that is if there was anything you could redesign to make the world more inclusive, what would it be? This is such an interesting question. When I got the pre-read, I was like, oh, my God, I can think of so many things. So mm-hmm. I looked at obviously my own world first, and I'm a really avid surf lifesaver. I row most days of the week. Um, and I actually also on the side teach spin. So I was like instantly the beach and gyms. But then I went, well, there's got to be something more that's beyond that because yes, these are places and spaces that, you know, I can go as an able-bodied woman, cisgendered, navigate that space with comfort. But actually, I think it's council policies <laughs> that is the answer to your question because I think about beaches, right? Even in my Council of Waverley, I've not seen um, one of those ramps roll out that allows people who are in wheelchairs to experience the beach, experience water, and I couldn't think of how horrible that would be or how you'd have to navigate that, the vulnerability you'd have to show to the people around you to help you get down to just get in the surf. And that's not fair. So for me, the answer is actually making sure that we have that matrix that I talked about before in all of our council policies of how we can be inclusive. And I'd love to see that change in Waverley. Thank you, Lara. It's been fantastic speaking to you today. You are such a bundle of energy and, um, you know, we're really lucky to have people like you fighting the good fight every day um, in this world that we're in and also working with such amazing young people and really showcasing the work that can be done together step by step, day by day. Yeah, look, I'm really lucky for what I do. And I'm very glad I walked into that auditorium where you were giving your first presentation. Who knew it would lead to here, hey? (laughs) Absolutely. And it's, you know, and I know it's going to continue to lead to to great things as well. So thank you so much. And thank you to our listeners for listening and being with us here today on With Not For. Lara talked about um, a whole lot of things and there were some great statistics in there too. So we'll have all of that information in the show notes as well. So if you'd like to learn more about how you can make the world more inclusive, contact us on www.cfid.org.au or see the show notes for more information so that you too can become an active ally. Until next time, this is Manisha Amin for the Centre for Inclusive Design.